You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. Hello, my name is Sydney. I am a high school sister and dancer. I am here to tell you about getting and any day, but live in the USA. They help people with access to it or join the good live today. They will tell us why some people live this. Sister, please welcome, get any shake and listen. Hello, everyone. My name's Anna Nicolay. And I'm Kate McGinnity. And welcome to Get That Good Life by supporting new behavior in ourselves and individuals with sensory movement differences. Today, we are going to present a lens in which to view new behavior that is causing trouble for people that we support. Once we are grounded, we will then describe a format in which to create and collaborate supports through that lens. So today we're going to start with our video. Kate and I made this video. This will be the lens that we will keep coming back to and that will really set the groundwork for the rest of our presentation. In this video, we attempt to articulate through some visual representation what has been explained to us by people with sensory movement differences, explained in their behavior, their changes in behavior, their own words, their own thoughts via drawing, explaining it themselves, and their own experiences. So before we get any further, let's ground ourselves today and get us all on the same page. To understand how learners with autism handle incoming information, let's start by looking at a very basic paradigm of what learning is. If we think about learning, first, information is perceived either from within the cell or from the environment, and it registers. Next, the information is processed, or another way to say it, is that it makes connections within the brain so that it can be stored and that stored information can later be retrieved and applied and we would call that learning. For instance, if we take the basic concept of addition 2 plus 1 equals 3, a child might learn that at school 2 plus 1 equals 3. Learn that fact, store that fact, come home, have two friends over and decide that they all want a popsicle. So the two friends need a popsicle, the child needs a popsicle equals 3. So that child takes that stored information, learned at school, made connections, applied it to the situation so we can say that has been learned. So if we think about the gears being the processing of the brain, information comes in, information gets processed, information gets stored for later retrieval and application. If we take just one sensory modality, auditory processing of incoming verbal, simplified here, we can see verbal information come in, information is processed, and then stored for people who do not have a verbal processing issue. So now as we shift back to thinking about learners with autism, historically, learners with autism were offered behavior modification and skill training to change them. What has occurred to me is that the most respectful way to approach anyone with autism is to think of autism as a neurology or a processing system that needs support rather than autism being a set of behaviors that need to be fixed or controlled. What we find is when we support the processing style of people with autism, the learning takes care of itself. 
the behavior writes itself, and the gifts of autistic processing and that individual have an opportunity to shine through. Going back to looking at what happens with verbal processing, some people with autism describe brain freeze or glitchy processing or difficulty in general with consistently processing incoming verbal information through their auditory processing system. And in fact, it might look like this. Verbal information comes in, loads down that processing system, and creates a glitch. And of course, there is not just one sensory modality. There are the five that most people know about, visual with receptors located in the eyes, taste with receptors in the mouth, touch with receptors in the skin, auditory with receptors in the ears, smell with receptors in the nose. There are three more that are not as widely known, including proprioception, which gives us information about where our bodies are in space and in relation to the environment, vestibular receptors, which are in the inner ear and affect our balance, and enteroception, which gives us a relation to the internal workings of our bodies. So now let's look at what might happen to the autistic processing with all eight of the senses. Information can come in and glitch at any one of those eight sensory modalities at any given time for any person with autism. Not only can information handling get off track during registration and processing, but there can also be glitches in the storage system. Storage can be over-specific. Details irrelevant to the task can inadvertently get stored in right skill. Then the processing system requires those details in order to retrieve that information or skill. For example, I had a teacher once that I was working with who wore her hair in a ponytail when she was teaching multiplication facts to a learner with autism. That learner then could only access those multiplication facts if that teacher had her hair in a ponytail. The ponytail was irrelevant to the skill, but it got stored in there right with the skill. One of the first suggestions when it comes to supporting autistic neurology is to think about front-loading meaning supporting the generalization and application of skills on the front end of learning, when the information is coming in rather than on the back end of learning or retrieval. We tend to wait until a learner is struggling to retrieve or apply or generalize and then fix it rather than take the processing into consideration when we are on the front end of learning. So the answer to all your questions, visual and digital information, registers more accurately, is processed with more ease, and is stored with more flexibility. This next visual model might be what we can help create in autistic processing if we respect the neurology by providing visual and digital information. And now on to retrieval. When we think about retrieval, we have to keep in mind that visual and digital information is more compatible with autistic neurology and is more easily processed and more flexibly stored. It leads to more generalized retrieval and a broader application of learning. So ways in addition to using visual and digital information that can support the information handling of learners with autism, please support internal regulation, external regulation, executive function, teach how to think about things, teach system, teach with an eye the longitudinal relevance to avoid wasting any educational time. And whenever you can, Please consider being silent in your approach and use video and technology in your teaching. So now as we take that big lens, um, 
that we are viewing behavior and we call it behavior, uh, but it's really just whatever an individual is doing that might be detracting from the quality of that individual's life. So it's getting that person in trouble or it's, you know, having other people shy away from that person. It's affecting, you know, the person's relationships, just their overall quality of life is compromised by this particular behavior. So now as we look at that behavior through this lens, we have, you know, what Anna and Lisa and Sharon and I call non-negotiables. And by non-negotiables, we just mean these are our baseline, you know, uh, hardline ideas that we put into practice always, if we're able. You know, that that's kind of the premise, I guess, is what I'm saying of what we do. So the first thing is that we always collaborate with the individual. It doesn't matter how young they are. It doesn't matter how deep in there they are. It doesn't matter whether or not they have a traditional communication system. There are many ways we collaborate with individuals. We collaborate by watching. We collaborate by listening in a big way, listening with more than our ears, listening with our eyes, listening with the behavior patterns that we see. Um, you know, trying something and then watching, you know, what happens with that support. Is that truly supportive of that individual? Along with that, uh, key here is respect of the individual. And we're all, always looking at ultimate independence because what we know is anybody that's able to express to us um, their wants in the world, most, you know, everybody we support and care about with sensory movement differences has a desire to be independent as they get older, regardless of what their processing um, obstacles are. Uh, we also want to be very careful about confidentiality and privacy. Um, we sometimes can get in the habit of speaking about people in front of them. And um, while we, I think all of us do that with little children that can't understand us, very quickly, people with movement and sensory differences age out of that. And yet, you know, especially if an individual doesn't have a traditional communication system, might not be verbal. We forget um, that, you know, they're taking in a lot of what we're saying or they're taking in the attitudes or they're taking in the emotions around it. So we kind of have a rule of thumb. We don't say anything about an individual that we wouldn't say in front of that individual. You know, if, if the individual is there, we include them in some way in that conversation. And sometimes that means doing some prep in advance so that that person can be, be included. And then the last um, non-negotiable is what one of my mentors and teachers, and I know that um, she's been here, Dr. Ann Donnellan, along with um, Martha Leary. And Ann Donnellan has an idea that she talks about of least dangerous assumption, kind of similar to the medical fields, you know, first do no harm. So looking at this situation, what is the least dangerous assumption for the individual, okay? So is it more dangerous to say that this individual can control anything he or she is doing and she's just doing this to get my goat? Or is it less dangerous to say, I believe this person is doing the best he can with the processing system he was born with and this situation? Because then that leads us to, well, if this is the best he can do, then how can I, how can we as a team support this individual differently 
so that he can be more successful rather than you know, um, blaming, we kind of get into blaming the individual for the behavior. Sometimes families know this, sometimes families get blamed for an individual's difficulty with processing that results in, in behavior that might not be the best for that, that individual. We also have families that, you know, blame school systems and adult systems. So, I mean, the blame game has no place in least dangerous assumption. All right. We're just going to believe we're all doing the best we can, especially the individual sensory movement differences. And um, one last quote from another uh, American that has spent some time in Australia, Paula Kluge, who does a lot around inclusion um, of people with differences in typical classroom settings. And Paula talks about unwanted behavior is the result of a situation that is not properly supported. Not properly supported for the individual maybe exhibiting the behavior, yes, and then maybe also not properly supported for those that are supporting that individual. So we're looking at the whole, the, you know, the whole situation and where do we need support? Focusing on the individual, but looking at the supports across the board. And that's exactly what we're going to dive into next. So the process in general, and in just a second, Anna and I are going to take you through kind of an actual form that you have in front of you. But the first thing we do is we give the behavior a name without any editorializing. Okay? So not he hits his head every time he doesn't want to do something. But if that's the behavior, what does it look like? Only what do we see? So. No editorializing. You know, Anna raises her arm, bends at the elbow, makes contact with a closed fist and whatever part of the body it is, right? And then we might want to have something about how hard it is. So it might have to be, you know, how how far away to hear the hit, you know? Does it leave a mark? Does it leave a bump? So that's when we name the behavior, that's what we're talking about. Then we give ourselves permission to what I say is, you know, to turn our inner teacher on, to turn our inner parent on, to turn that kind of intuitive part of us that that has gotten to know this individual and their processing style. And then we say, well, with everything I know about this person and how this person experiences the world, what do I suppose could be happening in the processing that's related to this, okay? So back to Anna hitting her head. Well, one of the things maybe I know about Anna is that visuals are really important to her, okay? And so I might then start forming a hypothesis by saying, well, I wonder when she hits her head, how many visuals she has available to her, or are the visuals getting stuck in her head, or are too many pictures backing up in her head? And then I might say, well, bring us to that next quote by a dear colleague and friend of ours who also has sensory movement processing differences, Judy Endo. And she says, how might the person be using this behavior as a solution? So if Anna is somebody for whom pictures and knowing her schedule ahead of time is really important, and I know that about her because I've asked people or maybe I've worked with her, I've, you know, I've lived with her. And then she starts hitting her head. What might I say about that? 
well, I wonder if she's trying to move the pictures along, right? Maybe the wrong picture is stuck up there. Maybe that's what this is about. Or perhaps that schedule is not in enough detail or it's in too much detail and she can't pull up the big one. So we start looking at the processing creates the behavior. And when we get back to the processing, we can find the real solution. One time I was driving in a car with Judy Endo and uh, she went, (laughs) and I said, oh, what's wrong? And she said, nothing now. That was the solution. Okay, so sometimes what we see in people with sensory movement differences is we see the end of an issue and then the behavior that is exhibited is actually the solution. Now, that was a fine solution, except when I was driving because it kind of threw me off. And so then Judy and I had to talk about kind of other ways that she could regulate and ways for her to get regulated before we drove together so that we didn't have difficulties in my safety, you know, in my driving. So after we have a hypothesis, we might say, okay, so then where's the breakdown? Where is the glitch in the processing? And then how are we going to support that? Okay, so back to Anna hitting her head. Okay, so if we think that maybe this is pictures getting stuck in her head, then we immediately go to where is the breakdown? When do we see it happening? You know, what situations does it occur in? And that gives us more and more information, but we're asking the questions around the processing. Okay. So we've already got our hypothesis and we might say, Oh, you know, I realized that Anna does that during transitions. Okay. Lots of our folks with sensory movement differences have trouble with transitions, right? So then I might look at, so then the breakdown is during transitions. How are we going to support that? Okay, well, first we say, how are we supporting it now? Well, we got a visual, maybe. We've got a schedule saying, you know, I'm going to get off the bus and I'm going to go to my locker and then I'm going to go into my first class. But it's going into that first class. This is always happening. So then what might we do? Remembering back to the processing video that we saw, what might we do to help Anna in that transition to class because something's not working up here for her, okay? So maybe the picture isn't enough. So we take it up a notch. Digital, visual information, video, things on a device that tends to kind of streamline information to a lot of learners with sensory movement differences. So maybe for those harder transitions for Anna, we're going to make a video from her locker getting all the materials she needs, and then getting into her first class. And we're going to show Anna that video before that first class. And then we're going to evaluate, okay, is it working or not? Oh, is is she increasing the time that she's getting to class? And is she decreasing the time that she's hurting herself? Then we're going to know that that support worked. That support might work part of the way, right? And it's not going to be an immediate overnight. It's going to be an overtime change for most of our individuals. So that's kind of our overall way that we're going to look at behavior that's detracting from the quality of life for those that we are supporting. All right. Now that we have the general overview of the case study, we're going to dive deeper into this process through a case study. So as Kate already said, the first step 
in this whole process is the presentation or the topography of the behavior. Admiring the problem might include talking at lengths about the incidents, the destruction, the hurt caused to others or that individual by that behavior. And we want to focus on the individual as well as the meaning and the function of the behavior for that individual. So we don't want to be talking about, well, it really hurt this person's feelings when this happened. And instead going right back, if we're talking about the hitting incident, the elbow bent, closed fist hitting the head that could be heard X feet away, things like that. And we realize that some of you may be attempting this with a team. So strategies that have helped um, repeating to the team, the facts are just the facts. We have X amount of time. Let's spend this amount of time labeling the problem and then the rest of the time on the solution to keep from admiring the problem. And finally, it would help me to listen and organize around all of your useful information if I can ask questions. Is that all right with you? Going back and taking that big old situation that the behavior is often in and just coming back and redirecting to the basics that we're trying to get at. In this last bullet, we do know that the emotional and physical safety of everyone on the team is of importance. But at the beginning of the process, we need to be redirecting that energy towards the individual and understanding the root cause of that behavior. and later, secondarily, will end up and will come back and circle around the emotional needs of the team. The example that we're going to take you through this case study process is one that actually was the work of our colleagues, Sharon Hammer and Lisa Ladson. So we're kind of invoking <laughs> their intelligence and creativity as we talk through this sample. This example comes from Lights, Camera, Autism 2, which is a book about technology and using visual technology, video technology to support new behavior. And so sometimes what happens, as Anna said, is when we sit down with the team, they just want to give us all kinds of information about how hard this behavior is to be around and, oh, it made me feel this way and look at I got, oh, this scratch and all of that. And while we'll deal with that later, we just want to get to the facts, you know, the basic facts. So this is the actual person we're talking about. It was a school-age student. The behaviors that were um, identified as troublesome were off-task behaviors when he was integrated into the classroom environment with his peers. And the way the teachers described that, and this was an elementary-age student, um, is that he would stare off into space and sometimes talk to himself. And that when they would try and redirect him verbally, he wasn't able to respond to their verbal or visual redirections. And they did build in breaks for him. They, he did have a visual schedule. So a lot of the things that we've talked about in terms of internal and external regulation had been and put in place for him. And yet he was still having difficulty with these, with this behavior of staring off into space and sometimes talking to himself and not engaging in the homework. So to me, when I, this is all very similar to when I'm sitting down originally with the team, this kind of is all the information I might receive plus some. And if I'm trying to go back to that first step in our case study, the end is really only the stuff in blue that we really need to be paying attention to in regard to just getting the topography of the behavior. The student would often stare off into space and sometimes talk to himself. 
That was all I needed out of all of that information to get what I needed for the next step of our case study. After we've got our topography, then that leads us to the group of questions that gets us to our hypothesis. So when we say staring off into space, you know, what does that mean? What does that look like? My first question would be when he's talking to himself, what is he saying, right? Is that kind of a self-regulatory thing? When he's staring off into space, that might suggest to me that his processing is maybe getting a little bit slower, right? He has to look away, not take in information. He has to look away to, to get through some information, or maybe it indicates a stuckness. So what we do then is we identify the behavior, as Anna said so, so eloquently, with the topography, and then we just start asking questions. Everything we know about this student, everything we know about the situation, what else might we want to know? What's he doing when he's staring off into space? What are the things he's muttering under his breath? And then we make a guess. Now, to the best of our ability, remembering back a few slides, we bring the individual in on the collaboration. And luckily, in this case, this was a youngster that could talk about his experience when given the opportunity, which is something we don't always do. We don't, we might say, why are you doing that? Um, well, maybe I don't know the why of my behavior, but if we word the questions, you know, tell me about the pictures in your head. Can you explain what, you know, what's happening for you? Tell me more about that and seeing if then, you know, we can get at some of the, the basics for that individual. What we ask ourselves basically and then have questions related to that is, is there an issue of how this information is either registering for the individual being processed or something in the storage and retrieval mechanism that is off. And then if we have a hypothesis, oh, we think it's in the processing, then we support the processing. If we say, oh, we think it's in the retrieval, then we support the retrieval. If we think it's in the registration, obviously that's where our support goes. Now there are, you know, people are maybe saying, how do you know what questions to ask? And obviously after years of experience, it's a little bit different than people that are new to this process. However, we've got some Shortcuts for you. Frequent culprits are sensory malfunction. So many people with sensory movement differences and diversity um, explain to us that their bodies betray them. You know, they maybe give their body one message and it does something else, right? Because um, that isn't a smooth neurological process for them. So we may say sensory not being reliable, not being functioning in all eight. Remember all eight of those areas we talked about. We see a fair amount of what we call stuck processing. People call it brain freeze. People have referred to it as getting sticky or glitchy. So that whole fluidity, you know, of the taking in of information, processing it, and then storing it for later retrieval and application just isn't quite as smooth. And another culprit is for people with sensory movement differences, if they don't have enough information and the right kind of information about what's going to happen and the order it's going to happen in their day, that lack of predictability can create a lot of processing differences and difficulties as well. So we name the behavior by topography, ask lots of questions to come up with our hypothesis, and then the next step is to share out our hypothesis. And again, as Anna said, we know that some of you are attending that are going to be leading teams, either as a parent or as a staff person. And so when we're teaching this process to teams, we always say, now, when you're sharing out your hypothesis, 
challenge yourself to tie the behavior to your hypothesis as you share out with the team. So for instance, let's take one that that is not this youngster we're talking about yet. We'll tell you about him in a moment. One behavior that that comes up in both of our practices and Lisa and Sharon's as well quite often is individuals that drop to the floor, right? They just fall to the floor or fall to the ground. So we might say individual falls to the ground such that their entire body comes into contact with the floor, the ground, whatever it is. So then we might say, well, what do we think that's about? Well, Going back to our first cheat sheet, probably sensory malfunction. Usually when the body is looking to get input into the joints and muscles, like laying on the floor, you know, kind of getting solid input. My guess in that would be that it's a malfunctioning proprioceptive system, that system that tells us where our body is in space and the receptors are in our joints and muscles. So we might say it like because the student's not getting accurate, reliable information from their sensory system where their body is in space, they can't access the rest of their motor movement. Therefore, their body falls to the floor to get as much of their body in contact with the floor as possible because that's the solution. If I don't know where my body is in space and then I get a lot of my body on a hard surface, oh, there I know where my body is. Sometimes what happens then if youngsters or even adults do this falling to the ground, we might try and kind of pull them up and they might even pull back against us. And we might say, oh, they're playing a game with me. But actually, if Anna has just fallen to the floor and I go to pull her up and she pulls back, where's she getting information? Joints and muscles, right? She's getting that proprioceptive input. So the way we would share this out is that that behavior of falling to the floor resulting in the body's contact with the hard surface provides a proprioceptive input that that body needs. So then our collaborative support might include other kinds of proprioceptive input. We might look at, oh, it happens when this individual is transitioning or having to walk down a crowded hallway. So we might then put in that person's schedule to get a lot of proprioceptive input prior to going in the hallway. So we might jump up and down, get that input into the legs. We might pull back and forth just to get that input into the arms and hands and and shoulders, right, before we send that person down the hallway. So that's kind of how it works with sharing out the hypothesis. Now, as we said, the team that was working with Monty is his name. We're able to go right to Monty and get some input from him. And so I'm going to hand it back to you for this part, Anna. Yes. So I'm going to share what happened after collaborating with Monty, um, what he was saying, the words he was using, and we want to note before I even share it, um, not all individuals can verbally describe these, just like Kate was saying. And we want to make sure that we're going back to what we were saying earlier in the presentation, that we're being really creative and unique and innovative in the way that we're getting input from our individuals during this hypothesis process. So just take the moment to read what staff learned after collaborating with the individual. After meeting with the individual and talking with him, collaboration, the team was able to figure out that he was having movies running his head and the movies were getting stuck. These movies were often of things that were upsetting or stress-inducing. He communicated that he did not like it when the movies got stuck and that he did not know how to stop them from occurring or end them once they got started. From page 50, Lights, Camera, Autism 2. We learned that we had movies getting stuck in his head and they were often things that were stress-inducing and upsetting. So 
that behavior of just getting stuck off into space or staring off into space that we saw had a lot more going on in the neurology and in the brain than we would have known without doing some digging. So then we're coming back to this hypothesis questions that we showed you a few slides ago. When we asked ourselves, is there an issue of how information is registered, processed, stored, retrieved? It was a processing and retrieval issue. He wasn't able at random times, those movies were coming in and interrupting that processing system and retrieval. He might have been going to get something else in his brain and ended up pulling up these movies instead. And then again, it came down to also a lack of predictability due to a lack of necessary visual support. So one of the things I remember about this youngster from Sharon Leeson's description is that he liked to watch the weather channel. That in itself was calming to him. But if there was extreme weather anywhere in the world, it would interrupt his other processing. So, you know, he might be in mathematics and all of a sudden he gets intruded with, you know, a tornado that's happening somewhere around the world. And then that ups his anxiety and then he gets stuck there and he can't think about other things. So he's looking off, you know, with this, you know, this staring into space and the talking to himself is his attempt to regulate around this stuck picture, this stuck image in his neurological processing. And Kate already started to touch on this with her example of the falling to the floor. The next step is team recommendations after we have a hypothesis. As a team, we develop a few key recommendations that we can do to support that neurology, trying to answer the question, how are you going to support the neurology around this function? The question is not, how can we change this behavior and how to get rid of this behavior? Because often when you start asking those questions, you're going to end up having unintended other behaviors <laughs> pop up because you're not supporting that neurology. So always coming back to the question, supporting the neurology and how are you going to do that? And finally, does the team need any coaching in order to do these supports for recommendations? Some people on the team may not be very versed in video and digital technology supports. Maybe you need to bring in OT to help with some sensory issues that you're noticing or that you're hypothesizing might be part of the root cause of the neurology. And our supports almost always start out in two large categories, because remember, we're talking about people with sensory movement differences and diversity. So we're looking at internal regulation and external regulation. So what we look at for internal regulation, that's another way of saying sensory regulation, but we also include emotional regulation. We hear from people with sensory movement processing disorders that sometimes the, the emotions come in much bigger or harder to act or, or much smaller, so much more difficult to access than they are in people that don't have sensory movement differences and diversity. So we're looking at the internal regulation you know, recommendations around internal regulation will probably always have an OT, an occupational therapist and or physical therapist who's trained in sensory regulation, advising, if not directly recommending us on providing both proactive sensory input as well as responsive sensory input on some kind of a schedule. So back to the person falling to the floor, for instance. So if we ask our questions and we find out, okay, this person, when they're transitioning into a noisy hallway, that's when they fall to the floor. So we put in, you know, a schedule of 
giving sensory input prior to that person having to be in that situation. But then if it does happen in that situation, again, we don't scold, we don't, you know, punish. We say, how can I get you this information now? You're laying on the floor instead of giving you more verbal information. Get up, get up, get up, get up. You know, maybe I'm just going to gently come in and give you some input into your joints and your muscles. And again, as a practitioner, I'm not deciding this. I'm asking my qualified therapist what we should do. But then once I know that and once we're trained, all of us can give the right kind of input at the right time for the person. And as a person gets older and more capable, um, we teach them how to get that information themselves, how to plan their own schedules of sensory input. It can also, and when we say sensory, we think of that broadly, you know, mindfulness, which we know, you know, any kind of meditation and mindfulness helps that core, helps that processing, any slowing of the breath, getting the breath into the belly is an immediate ease for the processing of the neurology. Things like yoga with sustained postures and asanas, those kinds of things, exercise videos, all of that can come under this internal regulation, but we're really getting people at their best spot, you know? And this also includes taking breaks from having input. If, if input is really hard to process, we maybe just have some quiet time set aside as well. So we look at internal regulation and the other big category we look at is external regulation because what we have heard over and over again from individuals who themselves live with sensory movement differences and diversity is that the more they know what's coming up, the easier it is for them to line up their day such that they can access the skills and knowledge that they need when they need it. So we're looking at organizing their external world in such a way that they know what's coming, they can anticipate it, that's probably a schedule, you know, in our world, that's probably a digital visual schedule because that seems to be streamlined into, into this particular processing style. So they tend to be visual in nature, preferably digital and displayed on some kind of a device. And some people need much more specificity in their scheduling and some people do better with a broader schedule. And that's kind of a trial and watch kind of thing. We just try different ways and we see how the individual responds and what is the most supportive. Now, going back to our example that we've been using throughout this case study with Monty, who've got tornadoes and other unpleasant images and videos stuck in his head, the team support and recommendations included brief calming technique due to the upsetting nature of the movies that were stuck as well as a visual PowerPoint. It could also be a Google slide or it could be any other type of slideshow format. But this team had PowerPoint, they used PowerPoint to, that structured that calming technique. And then with five deep breaths and then an additional routine to help him think about and change the movies in his head once they were stuck. So this video was used with Monte over a period of time, and it's a video of what we call teaching him how to think about it. You know, we tell kids, we tell individuals, stop thinking about that when they have stuck thinking, or we're not thinking about that now, or this isn't time for tornadoes, it's time for mathematics. But we don't teach them how, we don't teach them how to think about it in a language that makes sense to the way they process, which in this case for Monty was visual and digital. Now, you'll notice that the process was, as Anna said, first relaxation, those five deep breaths, 
you know, and then pushing pause, which he could, you know, he knew technology. So he knew about the pause button on the tornado movies. But then if you noticed, he didn't go right back to his work. It had him push play on a different movie, one that made him happier, his puppy and, you know, virtual tours of a water park and Legos, because those are things that made him happy. So it gave him mood stability before then shifting him over back to his work. And what's interesting is where did he watch those happy movies? In his head. Now that's something I can't do. I don't have the right neurology for that. But a lot of our folks who are strong visual learners and have sensory movement differences and fall, many of them in the field of, um, under the category of autism, tend to have that visual strength. And so some people, we might have those happy movies on a different device, but for Monty, he didn't need those. And then now that we've got Monty all kind of taken care of, at least for now, once we have the collaborative support in place, at least, you know, what our next step is going to be, we do come back to the team and we do, you know, have to talk through the fact that dysregulation is not personal. You know, if somebody hits me over the head in the midst of their dysregulation, it doesn't mean I don't like Kate. It means I'm dysregulated, right? And it is a natural tendency, you know, especially with with behavior that might cause physical harm or destruction or pull down a beautifully newly, you know, made drapery or a bulletin board or something. While that can be frustrating, it's so helpful if we can, can you know, Q-tip it. Quit taking it personally. Just please don't take it personally. Dysregulation is not usually about us. It's about the person experiencing it. And the more we can help them regulate, and the sooner we can help them regulate, the better our relationship is going to be. But we do have to talk to our team. You know, how do you decompress? Who do you decompress to? You know, to walk into a teacher's lounge and blast negative things about a learner is not a useful strategy. But having a few confidential people that we can say, oh, this is just really being hard for me right now. I know it's not about me, but I just, you know, got hurt or I just got frustrated or something just got, you know, ruined and I just need to talk about it or what do I need to do to take care of myself around it? Um, we just talk about the, the different healthy ways that we can decompress and ways that are respectful and confidential for the individual that we're supporting. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Imagine More Podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.